the Jewish people have a saying, I believe with complete faith in the coming of Messiah, even though he may delay, I wait for him every day to come. As a Christian, I believe with perfect faith that Messiah is coming the second time. The Bible affirms that Messiah came exactly on time, and he's coming again to set up the kingdom for Israel. That's one reason why we're watching the decline of the United States as the world's leading superpower. After all, the leadership of this world will shift during the millennium when Messiah rules from Jerusalem for a thousand years. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Hello, I'm Christine Dart. Jesus came to earth the first time on a specific mission to make atonement for Israel and mankind, but Israel wasn't ready to receive him. Israel should have been ready to welcome him because an exact timeline had been given in Daniel chapter 9 when Messiah would be cut off and die to make atonement. The majority of the people of Jesus' generation just were not prepared. Only John the Baptist and the prophets Simeon and Anna seemed to recognize the times, as did the wise men from the east, who had studied and discerned that it was time for the king to be born. And now, as we await the Lord's second coming, we can be either prepared or unprepared, either pessimistic or optimistic in the way we treat the scriptures. On the one hand, Jesus asked in Luke 18.8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The tone of his question seems to imply that faith will not be widespread when he returns. Perhaps not widespread, but certainly there will be a remnant of real faith warriors who are hanging on. Now, if we turn to Acts chapter 2 and read the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he took his text from the prophet Joel in the Hebrew Bible. With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, Peter proclaimed that Joel's prophecy had begun to be fulfilled with all of the supernatural manifestations, and he proclaimed that the Spirit's outpouring would continue to those of us who were far off, right up to the coming of the Lord. On the one hand, a great apostasy is prophesied for the last days, but there is not the slightest suggestion in the Apostle Peter's sermon that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit would be withdrawn. If anything, manifestations of the Holy Spirit will stand out in contrast to the last days when evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So let's examine Peter's prophetic preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 16 as he interpreted the phenomenon that happened on the day of Pentecost. He proclaimed, And this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. So Peter's telling us that the last days began on Pentecost. I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men dream dreams. 
And on my men servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. This is still happening right now around the earth. And it says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath. Blood, fire, and vapors of smoke. Fire, yes. Tongues of fire were seen on the heads of the disciples as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But blood and smoke vapors didn't happen on the day of Pentecost 20 centuries ago. Nevertheless, Peter quoted that whole passage because he was looking ahead. He was prophesying down to the close of the age. He continued, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. He probably thought it was coming sooner. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. No matter if it was just the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, or now, 20 centuries later, it's still true that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So now, in interpreting the Joel prophecy, the Apostle Peter depicted an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, beginning at Pentecost and continuing until the close of the church age, immediately prior to the great and awesome day of the Lord. Meanwhile, judging by the end-time signs that are proliferating, many Bible scholars believe that we have entered the last days of the last days. And one of the developments that's very painful to watch is the decline of America. Homelessness in the United States has been on the rise in cities around the country since 2016 and has reached crisis levels. China has the potential to challenge America as the world's leading superpower for global dominance. And doubts are proliferating about America's ability to defeat opponents and honor its global commitments. According to a report by the National Defense Strategy Commission, America's long-standing military advantages have diminished and the country's strategic margin for error has become distressingly small. The sad truth is that the United States is diminishing altogether morally, spiritually, culturally, financially, and geopolitically. There is debate as to the extent of the decline and whether it's absolute. According to historian Emmanuel Todd, an expansion in military activity can appear to be an increase in power, but in fact, expansion can also mask a decline in power. Todd observed that this occurred with the Roman Empire and also in the 1970s with the Soviet Union and that the United States may be going through a similar period. The United States has 38 large and medium-sized American facilities around the globe, mostly air and naval bases, and this is approximately the same number as Britain's 36 naval bases and army garrisons that existed at Britain's imperial heights in the 1890s. From a biblical viewpoint, if we try to understand end-time prophecy, we have to conclude that the United States will continue to fade because America is not depicted as playing a significant role in end-time Bible prophecies. Instead, Israel and the nations involved in the Gog and Magog War 
of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 are coming into prominence. No doubt, a symptom of America's decline in apostasy is that the so-called Ivy League universities have become poisoned with anti-Semitism. The Ivy League is a group of colleges and universities in northeastern America having a reputation for scholastic achievement and social prestige. Almost all Ivy League institutions had similar Christian beginnings. For example, Harvard was founded in 1636 as a Puritan Congregationalist institution, and it trained ministers for many years. Yale was established by a conservative Connecticut Congregationalist. Princeton was founded by pro-awakening New Jersey Presbyterians, and devout Rhode Island Baptists established Brown University, while Dartmouth was founded by mission-minded New Hampshire evangelicals. My Israeli friend Michael Froon is a columnist for the Jerusalem Post, and he heads up an important organization that's bringing Israel's lost tribes home. Thirty-three years ago, Michael was a proud graduate of Princeton, but now his pride in his alma mater has been crushed due to anti-Semitic sentiments flooding the Ivy League campuses, and administrations are failing to do anything to curtail it. Shockingly, a new course at Princeton this fall will include a book claiming that the Israeli army harvests the organs of Palestinians. But the Israeli army is one of the most ethical armies in history. They bend over backwards not to harm civilians. But the book promoted at Princeton alleges that Israeli soldiers deliberately shoot Palestinians with the intention of maiming in order to steal their organs. Well, this is none other than a blood libel, a modern version of the medieval anti-Semitic blood libels against Jews. Who would have thought that after the Holocaust, blood libels would continue to exist? And yet this form of age-old slander is being revived in the halls of academia. Moreover, a report by a nonprofit organization has found that the previously prestigious Harvard University had more anti-Semitic incidents in the past year than any other institution of higher learning in America. The incidents at Harvard include painting a swastika on a college dorm, tearing down Jewish posters of events, and disrupting pro-Israel speakers. A graduate who works at Harvard told the UK's Jewish Chronicle newspaper that the level of anti-Semitism on campus is shocking, embarrassing, and disgraceful, like nothing he's ever seen before. Also, many Jewish students at Yale said they do not feel comfortable expressing their Jewish identity or talking about Israel. As for New York's Columbia University, Jewish students said the environment there is hostile and anti-Semitic. This hostility is not confined to classrooms and debate halls. Anti-Semitism also extends to the admissions offices. There's been a dramatic decline in the number of Jewish students being allowed to attend the Ivy Leagues. A revealing article published by Tablet Magazine noted that over the past decade, the number of Jews on major Ivy League campuses has been cut in half or more. 
Quoting the article, this decrease is largely due to new elite doctrines that downplay merit in favor of definitions of diversity and privilege. Put more bluntly, Jewish students are being turned away. So, as Michael Froon asked in his Jerusalem Post article, what difference does it make? Well, it matters from a biblical standpoint because there's a curse against peoples in Genesis 12.3 for not blessing the Jews. And it matters culturally because America's top universities are where the nation's future leaders are forged. The poisonous anti-Israel sentiment in the air is bound to impact the way graduates view the Jewish people and the Jewish state. But I want to submit to you that what's happening on these university campuses was prophesied long ago because the Bible's prophets and Jesus said that the people of God will be despised and that all nations will come against Jerusalem in the last days. Those of us who have read the back of the book know that when Jesus returns, Israel will be redeemed and anti-Semitism will be vanquished. But in the interim, we have to develop patience. I discovered a jewel of a verse for our times in the epistle of James in the New Testament. It's a beautiful admonition. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote that as we see Bible prophecy being fulfilled all around us, we need to develop patience. James 5.7 Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient until he receives it. And so you also must be patient for the late rains. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Yes, indeed, the coming of the Lord is so, so near. But we have to develop patience and perseverance as we see Christians persecuted all over the world and the Jewish people being treated harshly once again. Our duty even now is to be part of that ongoing great outpouring of the Holy Spirit that began on the day of Pentecost. Let's purpose to move in signs and wonders in the midst of great end-time calamities and despite mounting end-time perplexities. Now, a great example of how we believers should behave is found in the next chapters in the book of Acts, Acts 3 and 4. This account concerns a great healing and the subsequent persecution of the apostles in Jerusalem. After healing a beggar who had been lame from birth, the apostles rejoiced, and they preached in Solomon's colonnade of the temple. But Peter and John were arrested by religious authorities. Although this happened 2,000 years ago, it reads like a report of today's religious intolerance. When the elders examined Peter and John and saw their courage and realized that they were just unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But the religious rulers ordered Peter and John not to teach or preach again in the name of Jesus. So the elites tried to censor the apostles. If there had been internet and social media in their day, the apostles would have been hounded fact-checked, deplatformed, and accused of being conspiracy theorists. But being let go after their arrest, Acts 4.23 records that the apostles went to their own company. We too must have our own company, our own circle of 
like precious faith prayer warriors. We certainly can't be a maverick or a lone ranger in these dangerous days. It's important to be part of a band of dynamic, strong believers in unity, in belief, and purpose. So no sooner were the apostles set free than they were drawn to their own chosen companions. Like goes to like. A person's own company reveals who they really are. And people in the future will go to their own company, either to heaven or in hell. So together, the early church raised their voices to God with one accord, praying a very powerful prayer. As they praised God for the way the lame man had been healed and for the apostles' deliverance from jail, they prayed Psalm 2. And that's so interesting to me because that psalm is just as relevant today as it was then. Praying the scriptures is the right way to deal with opposition. It's just essential that our prayers be founded on scriptural doctrine. And the viewpoint expressed in Psalm 2 pervades the whole Bible. And then in Acts 4.29, they prayed, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by thy holy child, Jesus. Let's stop here for a moment. Why would they refer to the risen Lord as God's holy child? Well, I went to the Bible commentaries, and a holy child represents the simple obedience of a child to his father, like the lifetime of obedience of Jesus to his father. Also, a child can be quicker to forgive. Unlike many adults, a child can be upset but soon forget. And at the cross, Jesus exhibited this beautiful childlike quality of forgiveness when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Then there's the childlike quality of humility. Put a rich man's child in a room with a poor child, and they'll play together. But it's not so easy for adults to mix. But Jesus, although he's king of kings, he always associates with the poor and the needy. Next, the apostles prayed for God to stretch forth his hand, not to strike and to punish but to what? Heal. And to enable them to work miracles at spreading the knowledge of the Messiah. The power to heal and work miracles testifies of the truth of the gospel. Jesus had promised his power so they had his authority to seek for signs and wonders. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This prayer meeting was like another Pentecost. They've received, and we must receive from time to time, fresh supplies of the Holy Spirit. Their strength was renewed and made equal to their day to be able to stand in the will of God. And when they had prayed, the text says the place was shaken where they were assembled together. The shaking was a sign their prayer was heard. And we have to continue to expect great things from genuine prayer and worship. It is after an answer to prayer, that the Lord arises to shake the earth. This is the spirit of faith. When God's people pray, strong vibrations are felt even in political spheres. When God's people groan, the Lord hears and answers in his own good time. And then the most firmly rooted national, social, and global or religious tyrannies totter and fall. 
false systems and hypocrisies are shaken, that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. I want to submit to you that in a shaking world, there are steady believers who know without a doubt that God is in control. And this truth is very liberating from fear of the future. We are convinced by this word that the Lord is going to bring about the end of this dispensation and not climate change or any other man-made disaster. God is in control of history and he has written history in advance in this word. Now turning to Acts 4 and verse 31, look at the outcome of their prayers. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's the weapon of prayer. The disciples did not shrink from conflict, but they laid hold of divine strength. And although believers are daily threatened, let's pray for more holy boldness and for earth-shaking results. Let's pray also for unity. The next verses, Acts 4, 32 and 33, are especially beautiful. It says that the multitude of believers was one in heart and soul. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they owned. Now, don't mistake this for communism. This was simply the free will sense of stewardship, not the abolition of rights to property. And with great power, the apostles continued to give their testimony about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. These early New Testament believers were full of holy joy, and peace in believing. And the great fact to which they gave testimony was what? The resurrection, because they were eyewitnesses of it. Multitudes believed in the resurrection. There were too many believers to fabricate a lie and keep it a secret. In fact, I cannot emphasize enough to you the importance of these eyewitnesses who upheld the validity of the gospel. We often watch the video teachings of Christian apologist Dr. J. Smith on YouTube. Actually, he's a polemicist, and his research demonstrates how a couple of centuries passed before the sayings of the prophet of Islam were codified and written down. But as for the New Testament, events were recorded by eyewitnesses. Let's learn from the apostles to give great prominence to the fundamental doctrine of the resurrection. Because this, the resurrection, indeed sets Jesus apart from all other prophets. They're still decomposing in their graves, but Jesus is alive. And according to Romans 1.4, he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible commentaries that I studied this week help us to consider some of the reasons why the apostles rightly attached great importance to the resurrection. Because number one, the resurrection proved that the Messiah is still living and had returned to his church. While his terrible death had temporarily struck the disciples with confusion and dismay, the resurrection was the return of their beloved master. So we don't worship a dead Messiah. He's not a memory, but a real presence. Secondly, the resurrection proved that Jesus had not failed as Messiah. At first, the disciples thought he had failed, but after the resurrection, they realized that Jesus had triumphed over death and accomplished atonement 
and his resurrection was proof that God had accepted Jesus' great sacrifice. Thirdly, they realized that Jesus was more than a man. His claims to divinity had been mocked, but the resurrection was the vindication of all of his claims. Accordingly, the apostles had pressed this fact with great persistency before the ruling elders in Acts 3.15. No mere man can break the bars of the grave. Number four, the resurrection proved the supernatural character of this new move of God within Judaism. And fifthly, Jesus' resurrection proved that it is possible for man to be raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul said if Jesus is not raised, our preaching is in vain. And he stated in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, if you really study God's word like this, you can become so full that it will come out of your mouth. The evangelist Dwight L. Moody once said the reason why so many professing believers don't work for God is that they're empty. They don't think of anything to say. You just can't produce water from a dry well. And many Christians are like water pumps. You have to pump them a long time before you can get anything out of them about the Lord or the Bible. But other believers, like these in the book of Acts, are so full of the Word and the Holy Spirit that they're like fountains springing up to eternal life. And I want to say something here also about the boldness that they prayed for. Boldness is not just being loud and forceful. Bold courage also has its tender components. Paul was a bold man. He accused people of being enemies of the cross, and he confronted others with their hypocrisy. But he also reproved people tenderly with tears. In the New Testament, Paul wisely admonished us to take time to examine ourselves to see whether we're really in the faith. So we have to stop to test ourselves. He asked the church at Corinth, Do you not realize that Messiah Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And so here's how not to fail the test. Romans 10.9 promises, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. Amen. See how vital is this doctrine of the resurrection? We must believe in our hearts. God raised Jesus from the dead. And so now I invite you to receive the Lord. He's waiting to welcome you, no matter what your religious or ethnic background is or what you may have done in the past. He is our Savior, the Savior of the world. Until he comes, let's continue to watch for him. And in the meantime, let's be strong and carry out the exploits the Lord calls us to do. And if you have any questions about today's topic, feel free to contact me on social media and especially at our website, exploits.tv, where you can sign up to receive our weekly email alert. A reminder also that our Jerusalem Channel app is available free to download from your app store. And so until next time, seriously contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darek. Shalom and Maranatha. A new day begins over Jerusalem's Western Wall Plaza, where Jews and Christians from all over the world gather to worship, pray,
pray and petition the God of Israel. The Holy City is a unique mix of tradition, history, and religious fervor that makes it the center of the world. Through your support of the Jerusalem Channel, we're able to present to a global audience a spiritual insight into the Bible and Bible prophecy that will impact your life. Thank you for being part of these programs. To make a gift, visit our website at jerusalemchannel.tv or download our free Jerusalem Channel app where you can donate by credit or debit card. Celebrate with us this ancient capital that will one day soon be the worship center of the Messiah.